and welcome to this podcast of Neonatal Conversations. This podcast has been created to improve understanding for neonatal and paediatric trainees, nursing and medical colleagues, and anyone who is interested in becoming more familiar with our boutique area of medicine. My name is Kath Carno, and I'm a neonatal intensive care specialist in Sydney, Australia. My practice is in the Grace Centre for Newborn Intensive Care and in neonatal retrieval as the Deputy Director of NETS New South Wales. Today my conversation is with Kristen James Nunez, who is a neonatal nurse practitioner in the Grace Centre for Newborn Intensive Care here at the Children's Hospital at Westmead. We're going to discuss the care of the newborn with abdominal wall defects to better understand how we might approach these problems in retrieval and in the neonatal nursery. Kristen grew up in Foster Tuncurry, a small town in the mid-north coast of New South Wales, before moving to Newcastle where she completed her Bachelor of Nursing degree. Kristen then went on to complete her Masters in Nursing as a nurse practitioner at the Sydney University and was endorsed as a nurse practitioner in 2017. So Kristen, nursing is such an admirable profession. How did you come to it and what was your motivation? Well, firstly, hello, and thank you, Kath, for inviting me. I am honoured to be involved in this initiative. I think my youngest memories have always been a career choice in nursing. My mum tells me, even at the young age of five, that I would talk about being a nurse when I grew up, and I guess that just always stuck. Although I do remember at the time of university entry, I did consider a change in direction to psychology, but I was drawn back to nursing. And I think this was really influenced by the time I spent with my best friend in my later teenage years, um, supporting him through his battle with cancer. I was in complete admiration for these nurses and their care they provided him. I then went on to complete my Bachelor of Nursing through Newcastle Uni. And when I graduated, I was fortunate enough to gain a new graduate position here at the Children's Hospital at Westmead. My latest rotation being through the Grace Centre for Newborn Intensive Care. And 15 years later, I am still here. Um, I think I've been able to experience many different roles over this time and I completed my Master in Nursing Nurse Practitioner at at Sydney Uni um, before being endorsed as a practitioner in 2017. Um, I think my motivation to remain in this profession is the impact I see nurses have on the outcomes for critically ill newborns, Um, not only through the provision of medical care, but I think the influence nurses have have on families and their experience in the NICU. Mm. So, um, wow, a friend with cancer um, in your teenage years, um, that must have been a difficult time, but it's obviously helped you become the caring clinician that I know in the neonatal nursery. And you're absolutely right. You know, the nursing care of these vulnerable newborns in the nursery um, has a powerful influence on their um, later success in life and their developmental success. Um, So Kristen, we often see babies with abdominal wall defects, um, not so commonly in retrieval, but um, they are common in the neonatal intensive care. So can you explain to us what is considered an abdominal wall defect, why they occur, and how common are they actually, and why don't we see them very often in neonatal retrieval? Well, I think when we think of abdominal wall defects, the two defects that we see most commonly and the two that I will refer to during this neonatal conversation are gastroschisis and omphalocele. Although both abdominal wall defects, these conditions um, do present slightly differently um, and their treatment strategies and developmental outcomes are quite different. So if we first consider gastroschisis, this involves the extrusion of the abdominal contents through a defect, most commonly to the right of the umbilicus, 
which allows small and large bowel, but can be stomach, liver, spleen, and bladder. And even we've seen the uterus or fallopian tubes in females outside of the abdomen, which is not enclosed in the peritoneal sac. Omphalocele is a midline abdominal wall defect at the base of the umbilical cord with the abdominal contents herniating into the abdominal cord. The herniation most commonly contains small and large bowel, but also can often contain liver. Um, if, we think, if we consider the pathogenesis of these conditions, neither is really clearly understood. However, there are a number of suggested hypotheses to what happens in utero for these conditions to develop. Um, in gastroschisis, the main hypothesis suggests some sort of vascular or ischemic event, which leads to a weakening of the abdominal wall and allows that extrusion of the abdominal contents. Omphalocele is thought to occur due to abnormal intestinal rotation. So we know that the developing intestine normally completes a rotation, protruding into the umbilical cord, but normally this recedes back into the abdomen as development continues. It is hypothesized that omphalocele occurs when the intestines do not recede back into the abdomen, but therefore regain, remain within the umbilical cord. With both gastroschisis and omphalocele, they're thought to develop early in gestation, around that six to 10 weeks of gestation. We believe with gastroschisis, this seems to occur in younger mothers, um, typically less than 20 years of age, um, with suggestions for this due to increased um, incidence, um, due to really related to lifestyle factors. Um, mostly including smoking, alcohol consumption, and recreational drug use, um, as well as low body mass index, um, with additional reports associated um, with the use of aspirin, ibuprofen, or vasoconstrictive agents in that early pregnancy time. Mm. Omphalocele um, is more common in women in two different age categories, those under 20 years, and then another group of women over 40 years of age. And these suggested links have been made to maternal obesity, um, and in utero exposure to medications such as SSRIs, the commonly used antidepressant. Um, it has been reported that the odds are doubled for siblings to bet compared to general obstetric population. Unlike gastroschisis, omphalocele unfortunately has a high risk of associated genetic and additional congenital anomalies, with literature suggesting isolated omphalocele to only occur in 30% of cases. Therefore, genetic testing and counselling is highly recommended when omphalocele is diagnosed, and this is to allow for informed decisions and further obstetric considerations. Can I just pop in and ask a question there? So when you said um, it has been reported that the odds are doubled for siblings, is, does that mean that if your sibling has gastroschisis, you're twice as likely to get it as other no, siblings? No, uh, it seems to only occur with omphalocele. Gastroschisis right. um, is in isolation. Right, okay. Sorry, I've got missed that. So if we think about abdominal war defects, they're not particularly common, with both conditions noting relatively low prevalence. So omphalocele less than gastroschisis, with 2 to 3 per 10,000 births and 3 to 5 per 10,000 births respectively. So why you don't see many in neonatal retrieval is probably due to this low incidence, but I believe also due to antenatal detection and referral to tertiary birth at a co-located hospital. Both gastroschisis and omphalocele develop early in gestation, as we mentioned, around that six to ten weeks, and therefore these conditions are commonly detected at a routine morphology ultrasound at 18 to 20 weeks, with 90% um, of cases believed to be um, confirmed on this routine ultrasound. Hmm, so they're actually quite rare, and um, just to clarify what I said earlier, so the omphalocele, if you have a sibling with omphalocele, you're twice as likely as the general obstetric population to have that. I never knew that. Um, yes. That's good to know. Um, 
And the, with the intestines being located outside the abdominal wall, that sounds quite precarious. Um, do they all need to be born by caesarean section? And what do we do in the neonatal nursery to care for the intestine and the baby in the early hours post-delivery? This is really interesting. When exploring the literature around delivery of babies with these conditions, there are really two main areas of debate. These involve the concept of early versus late de delivery, um, particularly in gastroschisis, and the most suitable, suitable method of delivery, so caesarean versus natural delivery. So if we begin with the early versus late debate, um, this centres around concerns about the bowel being exposed to amniotic fluid, um, which increases the risk of inflammatory bowel disease. However, we also need to consider this weighing it up against the risks associated with preterm delivery. So the consensus from most suggests delivery around that 37 to 38 week gestation. Of course, other routine obstetrics decisions should always be made when appropriate before this gestation. The most suitable mode of delivery is another topic of discussion within the literature with concerns around the impact delivery will have on the exposed bowel. So there's no real conclusive evidence to which uh, mode is more beneficial, uh, with re recommendations reserved for surgical delivery only for your usual obstetric indications. I will say on, the only caveat to this being giant on fallacile, where the baby and the defect could not be delivered naturally, with attempts to do so becoming obstructed during the second stage of labour. And I really think a really key point to make here surrounds the delivery of these infants. Um, to ensure this occurs at a centre that has direct access to surgical to a surgical centre to allow for ease of transfer for specialised paediatric surgical management. Mm. So um, the bowel's residing outside the abdomen and that's still safe to deliver vaginally. That well, seems amazing, yes. doesn't it? It does, it does. Yeah. And do you know in our nursery how many of them are delivered naturally versus cesarean? I haven't looked at our population in particular, but sort of just from my knowledge, I think it would probably be an even split, but right. mostly caesarean because of other um, obstetric considerations. Yeah. Okay. And what about the management of them then first? Yeah. So if we think about initial management of these babies in the early hours post-delivery, we really focus on um, five key areas, and these include thermoregulation, fluid and electrolyte balance, bowel stabilisation, gastric decompression, and the risk of infection. So if we firstly look at thermoregulation and fluid and electrolyte balance, we know these infants are at greater risk of heat and fluid loss due to the exposure of the bowel, with potential fluid loss in this group thought to be about two and a half times that than a healthy newborn. And this is due to insensible fluid loss from exposure of the eviscerated bowel and also through gastric losses. So initial management focuses on preserving heat and minimising this insensible fluid loss. So wrapping the bowel in cling film, apply, applying overhead heating and monitoring for signs of hypovolemia are really important initial steps. Bowel stabilisation is a crucial component of initial management. The bowel needs to be sort, supported in a midline position to ensure the mesenteric artery is in normal alignment to allow for blood flow to ensure adequate perfusion. The bowel must be observed continuously to assess for this. We know that twisting of the mesentery or constriction at the edge of the defect can compromise blood supply to the eviscerated intestine, and this results in bowel death and loss. We know these babies are born with distended bowels, and they contain, which, which contains bilious fluid, which is really apparent uh, and immediately at delivery, and we should really decompress this to prevent intestinal di distension, risk of perforation, and to minimise the pressure on the diaphragm with the insertion of a nasogastric tube. 
The exposed viscera places these neonates at an increased risk of developing bacterial infection and prophylactic intravenous antibiotic with broad spectrum cover is therefore recommended. Mm, so, oh, sorry. Can I just butt in there? So normally we would use penicillin and gentamicin to cover for obstetrics, sepsis yes. for these newborns. Um, what antibiotics do we use for these ones? In Grace, we tend to use um, Tazacin as right. our broad spectrum cover, um, but obviously we would need to consider obstetric risk and if that would be enough to cover for, yep. for those as well. With B-strep, et cetera. Yeah, and yep. any additional. Okay. So for Enphalocele, another important consideration is blood sugar monitoring, and that's due to links with Beckwith-Wiedemann syndrome, a genetic disorder which results in hyperglycemia. But I really want to stress here that how important these initial management strategies are, and they really can influence the trajectory of these babies and their long-term outcome. Okay, so obviously um, following all of that, we need to get the bowel back into the abdomen. Well, it sounds obvious to me anyway. So what are the surgical approaches to care and um, can we ever just leave the bowel outside? Mm. So returning the abdomen, abdominal contents pardon, into a closed abdominal cavity is the primary goal in surgical management of these infants. However, this decision is not always so straightforward and I think this stresses the importance of these babies having access to specialised neonatal and paediatric surgical team, team who can really make that important decision collaboratively. But I guess to simplify, to simplify the surgical approach to abdominal wall defects, the most ideal surgical outcome is a primary closure, which simply involves the placement of the exposed abdominal contents back into the abdominal cavity under no tension. This can usually be achieved when the defect is small. If this can't be achieved, the surgical management then differs for gastroschisis and omphalocele. So if we firstly think about gastroschisis, a staged approach is there then um, considered, and this involves the placement of a silo, which I guess is essentially a specialised plastic bag, over the exposed organs, which then is suspended above the baby. The abdominal contents are then able to move gradually into the abdominal cavity by gravity and can be assisted by applying pressure from the top of the silo. This process can take a few days to a week or even more depending on the um, amount of contents and the capacity of the abdominal cavity. Primary closure is hopefully completed when the remaining abdominal contents um, is being able to put back into the abdomen. With a larger omphalocele, the operative management is quite different and involves a process which is described as paint and weight, the goal of which is to promote granulation and the development of epithelium on the sac around the abdominal contents using a product containing silver with gauze wrap and compression bandaging to slowly compress the contents back into the abdominal cavity before closure of the abdominal wall, which usually occurs later in infancy. Hmm. So the surgical management sounds complex, but it really needs to be heavily supported by um, care in the neonatal nursery. So what are the important factors to consider for in the post-operative period? Yeah. So in the immediate post-operative period, one of the most important factors is to consider intra-abdominal pressure, post-reduction, and really the risk of abdominal compartment syndrome. So monitoring for signs of increasing abdominal pressure, which include a general abdominal examination looking for tension or distension, changes in peripheral perfusion, measurement of serum lactate as a marker of organ ischemia, ensuring adequate urine output, and increasing mechanical ventilation requirements due to diaphragmatic pressure. Bladder pressure monitoring is an invasive measurement technique which can be utilised to provide an invasive marker of increasing abdominal pressure also. 
If abdominal compartment syndrome is suspected, this then becomes a surgical emergency with the reopening of the abdomen required to prevent multi-organ ischemia and compromise. So just to talk a little bit about the bladder pressure monitoring, I mean, that's we just put a catheter into the bladder, we do. don't we? And yes. put a transducer on it. Absolutely. And, and what would be a normal number? Yeah, so we we like to see numbers, um, single-digit single numbers. Digit, yeah. um, so I wouldn't want to suggest a, um, a number because I think that is just one marker to look for in terms of abdominal compartment syndrome. Um, but, yeah, single digits for our bladder pressure is ideal. Yeah, okay. So then if we think about additional post-operative considerations, these include regular fluid and electrolyte monitoring and replacement because these babies are still vulnerable to intraoperative fluid losses as well as ongoing gastric output. Um, continuation of that broad spectrum antibiotic for prophylactic management of potential infection. And this is really due to the initial exposure and then the surgical handling of the bowel. Another important consideration is the placement of central venous access. Infants with abdominal ward defects cannot commonly commence enteral feeding for long periods of time, and this is really due to the functional limitations of their bowel. Their nutritional requirements are therefore made up by the administration of TPN, or total parental nutrition, which provides these babies with an intravenous form of what they need to grow and develop while they cannot achieve this with milk. So ensuring long-term access um, assists in ensuring these nutritional targets can be met. And I think this leads nicely into discussing another important post-operative component of care, which focuses on feeding post-abdominal wall defect. We know it is postulated that due to prolonged contact of ex um, exposure of the bowel to the amniotic fluid, this inflammatory process changes, um, the res which results in the bowel becoming quite thickened and dilated and really reduces the fun functional capacity of the bowel in digestion. Feeding therefore becomes really an ongoing complex challenge in the post-operative period and can significantly prolong length of hospital stay. We know recent literature is encouraging the early establishment of trophic milk feeds. Um, this is preferably expressed human milk for its protective properties. Um, and this is trying to really prompt or expedite our bowel function. But streamlining enteral feeding post-closure is also an important thing to consider and to provide some consistency in practice. This is a concept one of my nursing colleagues, Donna Hobson, adapted as part of one of her nursing research fellowships. Um, and she's developed a feeding protocol for uncomplicated gastroscresis, which is showing real promise um, in the use in our surgical um, NICU. So perhaps, perhaps Kristen, we could um, go through a couple of case studies just to further develop our understanding of these complex problems. Sure. I actually have a couple of cases I can talk through that we cared for in our nursery to demonstrate the varied journeys of two babies with gastroschisis. So the first case is baby A. Um, baby A was born to an 18-year-old first-time mother with a history of smoking and depression. Gastroschisis was diagnosed on routine ultrasound at 19 weeks and obstetric care was transferred to the high-risk um, obstetric centre, which is co-located to our surgical neonatal intensive care here at the Children's Hospital. Baby A was born at 37 weeks gestation via a normal a vaginal delivery um, following an induction. She transitioned, transitioned sorry, to extrauterine life well with APGAR scores of 9 at 1 and 9 at 5 minutes. She had a birth weight of 2,338 grams and was transferred to our surgical centre at one hour of age. Her initial assessment noted a small defect, which seemed to contain some exposed bowel. Baby A was breathing comfortably in room air. 
initial management focused on those important steps of wrapping the exposed bowel in cling film and then supporting the defect in the midline uh, position, obviously to prevent our bowel ischemia. Normothermia was achieved with a bonnet and overhead heating, and a size 8 nasogastric tube was inserted for gastric decompression. IV fluids were instituted, allowing for insensible losses, and we commenced antibiotic coverage with a broad-spectrum antibiotic. ABA underwent primary closure on the same day um, and had really no post-operative complications. She was able to be extubated on day two and commenced enteral feeding by day four, reaching full enteral feeds by day eight. She was then transferred to a peripheral centre for further management of oral sucking um, skills and weight assessment. Mm, so I just noticed a few things you said in there. So you said mum had a history of depression. Um, so did that mean she was on SSRIs, which is a risk factor, as you said? SSRIs are usually a risk factor for one thalassil. Um I didn't mention in her um, obstetric history if she was um, treated for depression, mm. but certainly smoking was one of her risk factors as well as her age. Right, okay. And then the other question I had there was, um, you said she was extubated. Um, did she need to be intubated for this procedure? She did. So we routinely intubate our babies for um, the operative procedure. Um, mm. But I guess considering that she was able to be extubated so early in the post-operative period just really is a testament to how, um, I guess, easy, if that's a way to explain it, her um, closure was. Yeah. Uh, we know this isn't always the usual case for babies with gastroschisis, and I think this next, next case really articulates some of the challenges um, that these babies can face. So if we go up, move on to baby B, baby B was born to a 28-year-old mother of three, um, all previous vaginal deliveries, with no real risk factors for gastroschisis. Um, gastroschisis was diagnosed again following routine morphology scan at 18 weeks gestation, and her obstetric care was transferred to the high-risk obstetric centre. This was quite a complicating factor for this family as they are a few hundred kilometres from their home in country New South Wales. ABB was born at 37 weeks gestation following induction of labour. However, she proceeded to an emergency caesarean section due to fetal distress. She also transitioned well to extrauterine life with outcast scores of 9 at 1 and 9 at 5 minutes. Her birth weight was 3,000 grams and she was transferred to the surgical NICU at 40 minutes of age. Her initial assessment noted a large defect with a considerable amount of abdominal contents exposed, with parts of the bowel already looking quite dusky. Um, baby B was initially self-ventilating in room air, however respiratory distress soon developed, and we believe this was probably secondary to diaphragmatic pressure from the defect, and she required intubation and mechanical ventilation shortly after her arrival in the surgical NICU. Again, her initial management involved stabilisation of the bowel, which required um, the surgeons to really unkink the bowel. It was then covered in cling film and placed in a midline position. Initial gastric decompression noted hundreds of mils of bile stained fluid, with fluid resuscitation provided and strict fluid management to allow for further insensible losses. Again, prophylactic antibiotics were commenced and baby B was transferred to the operating theatre for placement of silo. A partial reduction was completed um, with the remaining bowel placed in a silo, which was then suspended above her bed um, to allow for further gradual decompression. Unfortunately, baby B was relatively quite unstable on return from theatres and really required intensive care support, which included muscle relaxation, inotropes and high-dose analgesia to maintain cardiorespiratory stability. 
And I think this really reflects the de degree of intra-abdominal pressure and fluid shifts from intraoperative losses, gastric loss and insensible water losses. Baby B underwent man uh, manual daily compression of the bowel um, that commenced on day five post-operative um, with the first attempt at probably closure on day 10. However, due to the very real concern of abdominal compartment syndrome, this was aborted and a silo was replaced. A successful primary closure was then achieved on day 19 of age, which was still quite a tight closure and there were concerns in the immediate um, post-operative period for in rising intra-abdominal pressure. Baby B was extubated on day 28, um, with enteral feeds commenced on day 33. And that this was expressed human milk, I think is really a credit to her mother, who had continued to express throughout this time to ensure expressed human milk would be available. Uh, enteral feeds were gradually increased and full enteral um, intake was finally achieved 26 days later, which I think really demonstrates the complexity of feeding babies in, with this condition. Luckily, baby B was transferred to a centre closer to her family in country New South Wales to continue her development of oral feeding skills um, and to ensure she was monitored for continued growth and development. So I think you can see in these two cases the varied journeys babies with this condition can have and supporting the families of these babies becomes an essential adjunct to the direct care of the baby. Hmm. So you yeah, two very different stories. Um, so why couldn't we feed baby B earlier than day 33? Uh, I know some of the listeners would feel horrified that we're not feeding a neonate before day 33. So what was happening with enteral feeds before that? And surely her intestinal villi would have um, all laid down and atrophied if we hadn't fed before then. Yeah, I agree. 33 days um, does seem a long time before initiating um, feeding. But I really think this is a reflection on the difficulty in finding that balance between gently stimulating the bowel without placing it at risk of further ischemia, um, leading to additional complications. In this case in particular, we know the bowel had compromised perfusion very early on, which was reflected by the dusky appearance, um, as well as significant bilious output and um, bowel dilatation. I can only assume that clinicians were hesitant to commence central feeding until the bowel showed some convincing signs of recovery. Um, I think it's important to note this case was also from a period when early enteral feeding was not common practice and more evidence now um, suggests early trophic feeding as small as one meal every four hours to promote healthy motility and digestive function. Mm. Okay, that explains it. Um, and so what about later on in life? How old are they when they're, when they're discharged? I think you've given us a couple of examples there, but in you know, on average, how old are they? And how, and how do they do later in life? Do these babies have developmental concerns when they leave the nursery? Sure. So the outcome of both gastroschisis and omphalocele are very quite, are quite um, different. Um, and this is mostly due to the potential genetic differences between these two groups. Their age at dis discharge varies considerably um, and is really associated with their medical course and any other complications they may have had during their hospital stay. In gastroschisis, we know the most common com complications include intestinal atresia, uh, which is reported to be seen in about 5 to 25% of cases. And these intestinal atresias are difficult to diagnose before the time of closure because of the inflamed and matted appearance of the bowel, but it is considered a poor prognostic factor. Infection or sepsis is commonly seen from bacterial overgrowth in the bowel or central line sepsis. Necrotizing enterocolitis um, is also reported in about 20% of these um, babies with gastroschisis. 
And cholestatic jaundice is commonly described in this population um, due to the prolonged TPN due to prolonged TPN use, um, which is often managed with protective pharmacological support to prevent long-term complications. Mm. So necrotizing enterocolitis reported in 20%. So uh, I wouldn't have that sensation in our nursery that one in five of our babies get necrotizing enterocolitis. I felt exactly the same when I was um, looking at the literature, um, but it's clearly throughout the literature that it is quite a common um, mm. complication. Yeah. We must be doing something right. Let's, let's hope so. Um, so I think a really an, another important phenomena worth mentioning here is malrotation following abdominal wall defects, um, particularly with gastroschisis. Um, it is ex accepted and expected that all these infants have some degree of malrotation per strip hair, um, and this can also be referred to as non-rotation. And this is simply due to the fact that the normal bowel position was not formed in utero and surgical management doesn't involve a lab's procedure at the time of surgical closure. Um, the number of symptomatic malrotations is not really clearly identified in current literature, but I really think it is something to be aware of should the baby with a history of gastroschisis present with bile stain vomiting. And gastroschisis generally has an overall survival of 98% um, with normal neurodevelopmental outcomes. Unlike gastroschisis, however, omphalocele has a high risk of associated genetic and additional um, congenital anomalies, and these include trisomy 13 and trisomy 18, which we know hold very high mortality. Congenital heart disease, this is most commonly a true ventricular septal defects, ventricular septal defects, or double outlet right ventricle. As we mentioned previously, Beckwith-Wiedemann syndrome, which is an inherited autosomal recessive condition. Um, other conditions um, that have been linked with omphalocele include cantrology of Crantel, ex, um, extrophy of the bladder, and imperfect anus. The long-term outcome for babies with omphalocele really relates to the presence of a, a genetic condition or associated congenital anomaly with developmental deficit ranging from mild to profound. Unfortunately, children with Beckwith-Wiedemann syndrome are also at an increased risk of developing several types of cancerous and non-cancerous tumours which almost always appear in childhood, and that's reported to be about 10%. So I think as you can appreciate the long-term outcome for each of these conditions is quite varied. Mm. Thanks, Kristen. That's a very comprehensive overview. Um, so Kristen, before I finish my podcast, I usually have a couple of questions that I ask everyone. Firstly, um, where would you like to see the research for these babies go to next? And how can we improve things for these babies and their families? I guess when I thought about this, I'd really like to see ongoing research focusing around improving function of the bowel and improving feeding for these infants. Um, there is some great work focusing on streamlining practice and improving feeding regimes, but I wonder if there could be more research into medical treatment to increase bowel compliance and function in the newborns with um, abdominal wall defects, which I think would then have a great knock-on effect at reducing complications and hopefully shortening their hospital stays. Hmm. And I think um, when you spoke there a little bit about malrotation, um, it might be interesting to actually look at um, gastroschisis and the number of babies that end up with malrotation. Mm -hmm. um, I think it would be great to see more consistency in our models of care um, so that we can compare approaches and decide scientifically which feeding regimes work best. Although I guess it's hard to, the babies are all fairly individual, aren't they? So Absolutely. it's hard to get a homogenous group. I think improving bowel function is a very worthy but lofty it goal. <laughs> um, hopefully we can inspire some, one of our listeners to take that up as a challenge. 
So secondly, I'd like to ask how you think gender has affected your career and family life? Um, do you think we could be doing better in that regard? Uh, so I think I'm going to avoid this one. <laughs> but with nursing being a predominantly female profession, I don't think being a female that I would like to speak on behalf of my male colleagues. I would like um, to think that in any profession, and this is maybe quite naively, that skill, talent and hard work is rewarded. Um, certainly for me, uh, nursing has afforded me many opportunities and I believe I work hard on continuing to develop in this profession. Um, this hasn't always been easy and I remember a four-year period where I was concurrently completing my master's degree, completing advanced developmental care training. I got engaged and then married and had two children while I worked full-time. I guess with dedication, I would like to think I've been able to have it all. I love being a nurse and the work I'm able to do and I also have a great family life. Yeah, I think that's a real testament to the unit that we work in, isn't it? We've got really fabulous leaders that um, support our development in this unit. Um, well, I think you dodged that question on gender there, but thanks, Kristen. It's always a pleasure to work with you. You're always patient and kind and gentle. Thank you so much for the work that you do every day to make the lives of newborns and their families better. And thanks for having a neonatal conversation with me today. Thank you. If you have enjoyed this podcast or have questions, please head to the webpage www.neonatalconversations.com where there are links to the references used in this podcast and where we might be able to continue the discussion. You can also leave feedback or commentary on Facebook, Neonatal Conversations, or on Twitter at Neo Conversation. We would really appreciate any feedback you might have. Thanks so much for listening and thank you all for caring for the critically ill newborn. Thank you.